players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Risen Reef, Omnath, Locus of Creation, Battle of Wits, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanra on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 60 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, Vintage 102. I'm Filiger. <laughs> Fuck nope, me. Nope, you already said it. Wait, who are you? <laughs> no rewinding. I, we're, we're I, I'm Filiger, joined by Brunkook and uh, Brunkoval. Brunkoval. <laughs> this is going to be one of those episodes. Uh, how are y'all doing tonight? Uh, well, I didn't fuck up my own name, so uh, relatively good. Got that seems. going for you. Must be nice. Uh, how are you, Phil? You doing okay? I'm mostly doing good. I am currently in a little bit of a phase of burnout. I went out of town for two weekends in a row, which when you're a part-time content creator is an awful, awful, awful thing to do. Uh, So I am kind of currently catching up from doing all of that. So like, I'm good, but holy crap, I am tired from like pushing myself to get everything out there that I wanted to get out there. I feel you so hard. Um, Two weekends ago, I played in uh titan game shop which is a local pittsburgh area store they opened a second location and they did like a blow the doors off friday saturday sunday events non-stop kind of thing and i was out there saturday and sunday lost that whole weekend of content creation i went to a horse show with my girlfriend this past weekend and no content creation occurred there and this coming weekend i'll be at the buffalo chicken dip eternal weekend brainstorm original art alternate to real eternal weekend on saturday so there's a day down there as well so it's it's tough making it happen on the weekdays yeah it's it's totally doable but like i have a new video game that i really 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 want to play the binding of isaac repentance finally came out for switch and i had been waiting for this game for a very long time it came out for PC, and I'm like, I'll wait for Switch. I've got like 600 hours into this game on Switch. And then it was like another five months before the port happened. So like, it finally happened, and I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to do this. And I'm looking at my content creation schedule going like, uh. Yep. It, it, it's rough. I, I also uh, got Metroid Dread, which is is not a heavy game. That's not a game you put 600 hours into unless you're trying to master speedrunning it or something. Like, I beat the game in 11 hours, and... I'm satisfied with that experience, but sneaking that in here and there when it's like, ah, man, I could just record a video for an hour instead of playing this game. So I, I feel you. It, if if you let the, the queue burn away, the, the extra videos, it, there's not a lot of time to do what you want. I played in both of the showcases over the weekend. And I decided, shockingly, not to upload my zero two and the Saturday one. And then I ended up spending time with the wife after that because I don't want to be playing Magic all day if I can spend time with her. 
and then I played the uh, Sunday Pioneer one, which I, I played out the entire event, but it wasn't very good. And in it, I got paired against opponents that were playing Damping Sphere twice, which if you look at the Pioneer metagame, Lotus combo just like isn't respected at all and nobody plays that card like at all if you look at any of the winning deck lists, but I faced it twice. And people are like, oh, well, you should still upload your mediocre results. I'm like, I could, but I don't want to hear everyone backseat drive all of my losing matches the entire time while thinking that they know better, because that's just like something that happens when you're a content creator. And on top of that, like there's parts where I'm like, you have to be fucking kidding me. A second damping sphere. Like, I don't want to upload that. Uh, (laughs) I upload all of those. The 05 where they're just like. Uh, I recorded a video today where I was like, it was against Reanimator, and I'm like, okay, I know their hand is animate dead. I have the board beat. Uh, I'm, I'm good. Like, Force of Will's on top of my deck for next turn. And they're just like, Entomb off the top. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it's it's like mostly fake. It's for the camera. Like, I, I am disappointed that they ripped what they needed, but I'm not like actually mad. And I don't know. I, I think it makes for good TV good good viewing uh when there's real emotion involved yeah and i do upload some fives like i do that as well but i feel like it, when it's like one of my like signature decks people tend to be more judgmental i actually uploaded a lotus breach video yesterday and i lost my ma- uh, match playing for 5-0 and i'd say over 50 percent of the comments are like well you should have done this match five and match five if you consider this line maybe you could have won but like half of those things don't even work. Like the black card gets exiled and like, it's just not a viable option because of sanctifier, but everybody thinks that they know better. So yeah. And, and like that, that's just engagement to me. Like you get those comments all the time that it's like, you know, I, I posted a reanimator league the other day and someone was like, Oh, it, after they countered your first thing, you could have entombed for Elish Norn, which would have cleared the board. It's not Grizzlebrand, but it's still good. It's like, yeah, that would have been a great line, but there was opposition agent in play. <laughs> I wish I thought of that, you know? <laughs> like, looking at the permanents on the board, realized I didn't want to let them into them. It's just like, there's, you get comments like that all the time, and uh, the the people who think they're smart to, like, dunk on you when you're playing better than them while also recording and dealing with all that other stuff and narrating, and, like, you're still catching things that they're not, but they want to feel smart by coming at you. Like, yeah, whatever. It's engagement. Feed the machine. I had a really good one of those today where I forgot to make a Luminarch Aspirant uncounterable. And everyone's like, how could you possibly miss that? And what's not pictured there is like three minutes of dead time that was cut out while I was waiting for my opponent. And I was like reading an article or like on TikTok or something like that. And I finally got priority back and I was like, oh, I can finally cast my spell. And it's like I can only imagine you were playing vintage, Phil. I was. Did it get countered? It got countered. Ah, you <laughs> shrieking gorilla. Yeah, you deserve all of the hate that you get. Oh, but absolutely. Yeah, like, the, if anyone anyone who ever doesn't quite understand the the mental stretch that it is to like record and narrate and do all this at the same time, I will send them my screenshot of my Pithing Needle naming Pithing Needle. <laughs> That's my, my image worth a thousand words of just, uh, yep. In my brain, I was like, Pithing Needle. <laughs> and thus, that's what I named with my Pithing Needle. I missed a 5-0 recently because I had a turn one with Force of Will backup with Grizzlebrand, uh, like reanimating it. 
and I was just like thinking through my lines and I had talked through what I did and then I just didn't cr- click on my grizzle brand to put it into the graveyard. Oh, it just fell <laughs> and fine. It was, and it was just like, oh my god, did I just, just like absolutely shame concede that one, go to the next game. So that- speaking of turn ones with backup, Phil, uh, since this is a vintage episode, I'm going to share a vintage story for you. For the vintage showcase finals that's the one that's invite only it's like 24 people or whatever i got paired against canister and canister was streaming on delay so after i won my match i went back and watched canister's side of it while you know the delay was happening and at the end of the match someone was like oh who do you not want to face in this tournament after i had just won and i wish i would have clipped this or like saved this as a video because canister just goes brian cook always has turn one tinker with forcible backup uh, it just like made my week. Nice. <laughs> Legendary. Speaking of protection from turn one wins, I got a comment on a YouTube video this week that was like, I'll never forget the time that I thought you were Brian Cook and Mulligan to force a will and then you were on Miracles. And and we that's like a thing that Bryant and I talk about all the time, and that person has found my YouTube channel. They're they're back in the mix. Confirmed by a third party that that actually happened. Love it. So I mentioned the horse show that I went to. I want to talk about that a little bit. I had been to the horse pro tour, basically. Like it it's basically like shocking how directly analogous analogous? Analogous? Yeah. yeah I think hard, hard G. Yeah, hard G. Analogous the horse show experiences to being at a magic tournament. And I've been to the horse pro tour, uh the kentucky rolex event it's like one of four events in the world that's like at that level which includes the olympics and i've been to sort of like the horse magic fest which was just like a local thing it was like a local fair built around horse events and now i've experienced horse fnm which is just very strange to me uh with having only been to like bigger events before i like showed up to this thing thinking there would be crowds and like security and like a dress code. And we were literally just at a barn outside Gettysburg. And there might have been four total spectators there. Like everyone there was riding a horse or coaching a horse team. And I was just like the only spectator uh, other than like someone's mom. And it was literally like they were making announcements exactly like they do at a Grand Prix where like in the middle of someone's run, they'd be like, we need two more to fire the one meter pony jump, (laughs) two more to cue into the pony jump. And this just happened all weekend. And it was just like, Mike Guptill, is that you? Like what's going on? And uh, it was, it was pretty, and it felt like a magic tournament too. There was a lot of standing around. Uh, You railbird your team when they're up and, and you're not. And, when someone is dead or just not playing like me, I was just team dad making like sheets runs for the team and stuff. And it was kind of fun just being the bored girlfriend at the magic tournament as it were. Uh, and I- I'm glad to I experienced it once and I probably will not be in a hurry to do it again. I imagine that you were there like, uh, you know, the Kentucky Derby, how in the movies, the women always have these big floofy hats. That's how I'm imagining you right now. Yeah, I that's one of the embarrassing things. I thought there'd be a dress code. I showed up in just like a sundress and a gigantic hat. <laughs> and uh, I w- had like mint juleps, uh, a cooler full of mint juleps. 
I don't know what that is, and I don't drink alcohol, so I assume I can't have that, but uh, I had them, and it turned out we were just at a barn in Gettysburg. So this is uh, sort of unrelated, but the way that my GPS from Syracuse takes me to SEGDC, on the way down, I always drive through Baltimore into D.C., but on the way back, my GPS always tells me to cut through Gettysburg and go all that way. Like, I end up not taking 81 most of the way until I come near, like, Scranton. But I've always found it interesting how, like, the way down, it's like, no, you always go through Baltimore. And on the way back, you always go through Gettysburg. I've never stopped in, but I've driven through there a bunch. Roanoke does that to me from Pittsburgh. There's, like, five or six different vastly diverging paths you can take out of Pittsburgh that all eventually get to Roanoke in about the same amount of time. And my GPS just straight up roulettes them every time, down and up. It's just like, I don't know, am I going to be in Maryland or West Virginia? Or, like... Uh, where am I going? There's one that's mostly highway and one that you drive, you lose cell service for about an hour and you're in the middle of straight up like deliverance country and you have to drive under this like scary coal mining operation in the middle of the night and there's like conveyor belts going over the road and like it, it, it's like a whole. Th- I, yeah, like I feel you. I have the done this drive about- in the opposite direction. I yeah. can confirm all of this. Yes, it's true. Um the weirdest thing about Gettysburg to me was how many Confederate flags I saw on cars and houses in literal Gettysburg, which is like where Abe Lincoln made his famous speech about why slavery is bad and how we need to win the Civil War. And then we won and the Confederacy never recouped. Like that was the turning point of the Civil War. Hello. And like residents of Gettysburg are just driving around with Confederate flags on their car. Brilliant, brilliant people out there. So on an unrelated note, I watched Red Notice over the weekend and I convinced my wife to watch it with me. I'm like, we both like The Rock. We both like Ryan Reynolds. What's not to like about Gal Gadot? Let's watch. She's like, it's going to be like Fast and the Furious. I'm like, exactly. That is why we want to watch this movie. And we both went in with super low expectations, like as low as you can go. And by the end of the movie, I was like, is the second one out yet? I want to watch this. Like, it was so awesome. Like, it's not a great movie, but it is super fun. It knows what it's about, and it is 100% unapologetic about it. Yeah. One of my friends is a uh, medium amateur film critic, and his review of Red Notice was that it's Ocean's Eleven with 10 times the budget and half the style. I don't think I'd agree with that, but all right. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. I'll definitely watch it. All right. So what's everyone up to on the magic end? Well, uh, two weeks ago, I played a doomsday or a local doomsday i should say and i got to experience what brian's been going through with crushing his 2ks or whatever but on a smaller scale so there was only three rounds because there was only eight of us but the number of turn ones like actual turn ones not just dark ritual doomsday but turn one kills i had with doomsday with force backup or like pack backup was just insane i think the latest i killed in any given game was turn three with double counter backup like i was just running so hot and i was like I understand why Kai Sawatari just wins every event he plays now if he just draws like this all the time. Like, it, it just felt unreal. Deck's the so deck good. is seriously messed up. Uh, I mentioned on our last cast that I won a Tundra playing Doomsday locally. Well, I won another Tundra playing Doomsday locally. I Two weeks ago, I played a personal tutor list that was built to just go fast. It had, like, four packed of negation across the 75. It's, like, just cheese the... The good matchups, cheese the bad matchups, let's go. And I tried the 
slower version with like four baleful strix main deck to fairy and that version i didn't really like uh, i think uh, like i just missed everything that was good about the fast version and i missed monastery mentor but still it's fucking doomsday and i would just like easily top forward that event i lost in the semifinals to alex bastecki who was on blue red delver which is the natural predator of doomsday and also i misbuilt my pile <laughs> like and i i would i would have at least got a game three if i just built my pile correctly so uh playing suboptimally with a bad list still easily uh took home a dual and doomsday is fucked i messaged brian after he had won another tundra and i was like how does it feel to win with a ham sandwich brian is so good he carried that list yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> uh, the The most insulting part of the list, though, was in the top four against Alex. the The store always runs their top eights with open deck list. It's just a thing they do. And so I looked at Alex's list and I was like, "Good luck with those gut shots, idiot!" And then he gut chat one of my baleful strixes and then crunched for five. And I was like, "God damn it! That was a really good gut shot." <laughs> that was a game ending gut shot. So we talk about our YouTube channel all the time, and I don't know about YouTube, but at the beginning of the year, because I think that all three of us like started to upgrade our YouTube channels in the middle of December, or at least that's what I remember. But at the time I set a goal, I had uh, 1.6 thousand subscribers, and I said, you know what, I'm going to try to quadruple my channel this year. Let's see if I can hit 6K. And I thought it was pretty unrealistic. By the end of November, I'm going to hit it. And I'm just like super proud, even though like you two are way surpassed me at this point like brian's literally almost double what i have but i am so proud that i actually going to hit that goal that i thought was unachievable back in december um just thought i'd share that that's awesome yeah i i think most of us started going hardcore last november because that's i think that's when i started like doing thumbnails and doing stuff specifically for youtube and I feel like sometime in December, the three of us kind of sat down, had a conversation, started working on our tech and back end and stuff. And the, the growth in a year for all three of our channels is absurd, honestly. I'm so happy Brian's about it. Brian's going to be uh, the next Pleasant Kenobi. He's going to hit 100k by next year. I'm calling it. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's likely to occur without a uh, like a channel fireball sponsorship or something if they want to boost me on their, their home site or whatever. Even that, I, I don't know, but but yeah, the the growth is steady and it it's great. Like I'm just and and now the cool thing I was talking to my friend in the car last week about this, where it's just like I'm at the point where I have a steady product that appeals to people, and I could get creative and put in extra work and do extra stuff, and that would create more and like do more and offer more. Or I can do the exact same thing that I'm doing and just wait for more eyes to drift onto my channel. Because there's more than, you know, 11,000 Magic players on Earth. And it's just a matter of time until they, you know, the algorithm puts me in front of them and they click subscribe. And that's with no changes at all. No promos, no anything. But I do have a super dope promo lined up that uh, I, I got this from Mental Misplay, who's a CEDH streamer. He has mana crypts with a QR code that links to his link tree that he passes out in real life. So it like I've been thinking for months, like, how do I get online clicks when I interact with people face to face? Like, how can I do this? Like, is there something that I could like 
leave at the local game store that someone could pick up and remember to go home and click my channel. And a QR code just from your phone on a like proxy magic card is brilliant, a popular proxy card. So I've spent this week commissioning artists. I'm going to have, I think, uh, Sensei's Top, Soul Ring, and Scroll Rack made with original art. And I'm going to have QR codes and just drop piles of those at all the LGSs, take them to Grand Prix, litter the tables with them, like whatever. Gonna get those out in the mix. That's my next big promotional endeavor. Oh, that's super cool, honestly. Yeah, I love it. Yep. Feel free to steal it, because I already did. I might do that. So, last week, I woke up to a notification on my phone. I'm sure, like most people, in the morning I check my notifications, I clear them, whatever. I woke up to one that said that I was tagged by Julian Knob, and I was like, oh, fuck, what did I do? And I like I took a second to think what I could have possibly done the <laughs> night before I went to bed. And I was like, nope, can't think of anything. And I click it. And it was Julian saying that I have the nicest YouTube thumbs. And I was like, finally, someone thinks that my thumbs are great. Meanwhile, uh, I am the least successful out of the three of us. And I'm just like, finally, something I've done well. Uh, so that felt pretty nice. Thanks, Julian. I mean, unquestionably, you're like your artistic stuff is way beyond what Brian and I do. And it's not close. <laughs> Absolutely not I fucking close. I am yeah, a definitely. web designer, so I have a little bit more experience than most people. Uh, that said, I've been begging you two to start using Photoshop for the last like year so I could teach you tricks. Uh, well, that's the thing I just said, where I could make all these upgrades <laughs> and do this extra work in in different places. Like, There's a lot of optimizations I could lean into, or I could do exactly what I'm doing. And it's working, and it's just going up. So uh, in, until... Uh, basically, I have a laundry list of things that I need to do for the channel, like my... Uh, my promo intro is a little bit wrong because of like the TCG player stuff that we talked about before on the cast where it's like, I thought it was a code you enter at checkout, but it's actually a link that you have to click to get into the, like the affiliate, however it works, whatever affiliate tube the internet puts you in, uh, since the internet is tubes. And like, I, I need to fix that. And there's some stuff, but uh, when, when my job gets stable and I know what my hours actually are and can budget time for that, uh, there's a, there are some fun things that I'm planning to update. Brian, I was watching one of your videos, and uh, I think that you do something that I don't believe Phil or I do. I know that I don't. But halfway through one of your videos, you're like, hey, this is a friendly reminder. You're still watching. If you haven't already, subscribe, whatever. And I was like, Brian, that's fucking brilliant. Why don't I do it? And I'm like, I don't know if I'm allowed to steal Brian's thing, but this is genius. Uh, I was really like taken back by that wait did you just imply that i invented the mid-league bumper like i invented a commercial <laughs> you're the first one that i've seen do it midway through a video be like hey you're still watching you should probably subscribe yeah it's like five to seven seconds and it's just like you know here's my links go click them by the way and uh let's get back in yeah those are in other sorts of videos i watch all the time like i've been watching a bunch of dungeons and dragons stuff and like 15 minutes into the video they're like hey if you're still here Yep, you made it this far. We're halfway through the video. If you haven't subbed yet, it's time. Click it. I might steal that. Do it. All of my things are, are available for stealing by anyone. Like, we're all in the same boat. Rising tide lifts all shifts. No, nobody's going to corner the YouTube market. <laughs> YouTube viewers, the billions of YouTube users that exist. Uh, you can You can have some. I, all right, so a question for you two, and I think Phil might have a different answer since Phil used to be more involved with Twitch. When all the MPL stuff came out, there was a lot of talk about 
Twitch being oversaturated with magic streamers, especially good streamers, because before then it would be a lot of like outer fray people that maybe you didn't think were as good. Then all of a sudden, Bram Braun Dwin, you know, uh, Huey, LSV were streaming regularly. Do you think that made a huge impact on the number of Twitch streamers, or do you think that's just like, eh, it might have been cool for two weeks or so and then disappeared? Um, I'll I'll speak to like the legacy side of the equation. All that MPL shit starting up had zero impact on any of my numbers in any capacity. Um, that was not the audience that I was fighting with. I will say, like, on the legacy streaming side, if two of the big streamers are streaming at the same time, like, good luck getting your numbers up. It sucks. So I can imagine for smaller streamers starting out, like, their numbers might have absolutely gotten cannibalized by someone bigger than them. Um, I can very much see that being a real thing. Um, but if you're not fighting for the same format or the same time slot or something like that, um, it's not that big of a deal. The difference with YouTube is that, like, for so many of the North American content creators, like, you're fighting for the same time slot in a way that you're not doing when it's on YouTube. When it's on YouTube, like, you watch it whenever you want at your convenience, and when it's on Twitch, it's like, well, you're catching it live or you're catching a rerun. And sometimes the reruns don't work for DMCA reasons or something like that. So, Yeah, I have two things to add to that. Like, recently I was on the Mental Misplay stream again. I've been guested over there a couple times playing EDH. It's a lot of fun. And while we were live, he was doing all, like, the back-end stuff, like, I kept getting Twitter notifications and Discord notifications that he kept pushing. Like, we streamed for, like, three or four hours, and I probably got three or four, like, every hour, like, a uh, Twitter notification that's like, you were tagged in uh, this retweet of, like, we're still live, I got Bosch and Roll on the channel, and, like, we're going into game three. And, like, he's hustling in the background constantly to try to keep viewers present or clicking the, getting, putting it in front of the people who didn't see the tweet an hour ago, and, like, all that and i also am getting it was about three years ago now that i was live streaming when i was on twitch and i'm getting facebook memories that are like you know three years ago you said catch me live on twitch playing the popper challenge at 5 p.m and i i'll like click into my memories and i will have posted three or four times that day just like i'll be playing popper at five it's four o'clock i'm playing popper in an hour I'm playing Popper right now, and then, like, at 6, I'm like, I'm still playing Popper, jump in. And it's like, fuck that. That sucks. It sucks so much. And uh, I don't miss that hustle at all. And just recording on my schedule and putting it out where people can find it on theirs. Love it. I do remember at the start of COVID, I had streamed a couple times, maybe a handful of times. I was like, you know what? I'm a Twitch affiliate. How far am I away from being a partner? I can't be that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get fucked. I'm glad Phil found that funny. Uh, but what I found was I would go live and then like 30 minutes later, Anurag would go live. Maybe 30 minutes after that, Jarvis would go live. And then like Arkin streamed 16 hours a day. Arkin was live the whole time. Then all of a sudden, Thraben U has gone live. I'm like, I am competing. Four out of the five weeknights versus other legacy streamers during the same time slot. I was like, this is impossible. Like, I would have 70 people watching me, but I was like, there's no way I'm ever going to get any more than that with all these people competing at the same exact time because legacy is such a small pool to begin with. Uh, and that just made me want to quit streaming. 
Yeah. So, like, that's part of the reason I got into YouTube. Another part of it was, like, there was a few times where I just got blatantly ghosted, which is a part of streaming. You know, you put yourself out there. But I am so fucking competitive that I was like, this will not happen again. And I started recording instead. Yeah, that matters a lot with the Epic Storm, too. Like, when if my opponents want to look at my hand, like, sure, I'll show you my hand. Let's play. <laughs> I'll show you the, the two force wheels and the brainstorm. What are you going to do with that information? Like, whatever. But yeah, for, for sure. Uh, streaming sucks. Uh, power to all the streamers. You're you're grinding hard out there. And every streamer I talk to, my first question is, like, are you dumping your VODs on YouTube? Are you using any editing, like, to kill dead air on your VODs? Like, are you doing anything? Like, just break up the games? And if any of the answer to those questions are no, it's like, well, I have 15 minutes worth of work that'll you know, triple, quadruple your audience very quickly. And just get over on YouTube. It's great. All right. Before thing that I worry about, I, th I think bit. we should probably like stop this train before we just turn this into another content creation episode. Oh, uh, why? Ah, it's the best. Fine, fine. All right. So back to back to magic. Or uh, well, you know, the other side of magic. Um, I played what was the most miserable league to play I've ever played in my life. I played a vintage league that took me four hours to record where my queue times were like 25 minutes. I made the mistake of trying to play a vintage league the day before the season ended and it was awful. And once I, I actually... saw the responses to that, they were like, well, yeah, it's like the day before. I'm like, no, that is a normal vintage queue. Like people are trying to make excuses for vintage. I'm like, no, that's just how it is. The one I recorded the week before Phil was three hours and 45 minutes and that doesn't count the queue times. Uh, vintage just like the leagues suck and people play so slowly yeah the 25 minutes is kind of outrageous I, i'm usually ready for like 10 minute cues but yeah it, it is rough out there uh popper can sometimes be the same way when you just like join the league because you have to because somebody paid you to do it and it's like league has 41 active members <laughs> like, damn it and you know modern has like a thousand active members in their league I don't know what you're talking about, to be honest, regarding Popper. Uh, this is not an exaggeration. Last weekend, I played, well, two weekends ago at this point, I'm sorry. I played 10 Popper leagues in the course of three days just because I love the format so much. It does not take uh, 10 minutes for me. Like, they go pretty quickly. All right. Format's in a better place now. Uh, if you tried to queue up in, sometimes, like, it's been in a series, like, Popper's kind of like Legacy lately, where, like, it's always on the verge of broken and then it takes a very long time to fix. And there have been a couple periods of drag where it's like, nobody's actually in the format, but I actually like it right now. I, I like it so much that I made sure to foil out my blue, black ninjas list. I have blue, red foiled. That's been my, my main deck in popper for years, but blue, black is better now because the black removal lines up against Atog, which is the premier threat of the format. And the red removal doesn't. And yeah, uh, blue black ninja, formerly known as Delver, doesn't play Delver anymore. But I was pleasantly surprised to learn that Fairy Seer was reprinted in Old Border in Modern Horizon 2. And I was unpleasantly surprised to learn what snuff out costs in foil. The answer is three figures. Oh, yeah. All right. Sorry, I, I cut Phil off on his vintage thing. Phil, what did you play in vintage? I'm sorry. I played 
So I recorded with the deck that went on to win one of the vintage challenges over the weekend. Um, it's a bit of a brew. It's a green-white hate bears deck that is built around Outland Liberator, which is a... I'll be honest. Uh, what does that do, Phil, for the plebes like me? <laughs> okay, so it is a essentially a 2-2 green Quisali Pride Mage that can transform, um, like the werewolf mechanic, into something that destroys an artifact or enchantment each time it attacks. And okay. also is still Kasali Pride Mage. Yes. Yeah, I I built elves for my friend who hasn't played Constructed Magic in two years in that event where I played Doomsday. And I just pulled some list off the internet, whatever Newton was doing, and he had one of those cards in the sideboard. And the only time I saw it in play, I walked by my friend and he was locked behind an ensnaring bridge but he had collector oof and this thing in play and pithing needle was naming the outland liberator and his opponent had to keep just like spewing off extra mox opals every turn just to make sure that thing never flipped because once it flipped it's not outland liberator anymore and the pithing needles it doesn't matter and then like the ensnaring bridge was the only thing keeping it back and it was it was exciting gameplay it's like if that trigon predator ever takes to the the backside you're dead legacy players in general i think don't understand like good search engine optimization seo being a web designer it's like part of my daily job you want to label decks what they are and what people will search for example if your deck is elves newton i'm sorry this is slightly directed at you calling it black green rock or oops all cradles it doesn't help people find your stuff um just because like no one's ever going to type in a google like for an elves list oops all cradles uh and expect it to come up like gaia's cradle might get a hit but it's like just bad stuff and i've seen it not only with like elves players recently but like combo players and even mid-range players just naming their decks ridiculous things I'm like oh, no one's ever going to find that deck list i'm sorry uh but it's just like a small thing that drives me insane it's, like you two know about it because we do that stuff for, like all the tags and stuff for our youtube videos but legacy players out there not wanting their stuff to be found at the same time you also have to make the title interesting enough that someone will click on it my formula is the first couple words are the clickbait and then everything after that is just seo soup like yep. i'm releasing a video tomorrow it'll be up by the time this cast goes live it it's a mono red deck that five owed and it has stage deaths scroll dreadnought painter grindstone eight welders blood moon it's just like all of the red combos in one pile and like in all caps it's like every red combo exclamation point and then after that it's just legacy dark depths phyrexian dreadnought painter servant grindstone blood moon until i ran out of characters it's just like naming all the cards in the deck people are gonna find that through google though yeah absolutely yep. it's not pretty but it doesn't have to be what people don't realize is videos right now have a higher seo ranking than like web pages so whenever someone's typing in Legacy Blood Moon Combo, Brian's video is going to be one of the first thing that pops up now. So oh, even yeah. if they don't find it this week, they'll find it two months from now. And that's the sort of stuff that really matters. Oh, man, I have a great story about this. I don't think I've told this one on the cast. Um, I recently received a business offer from a literal tax company because my <laughs> SEO scores were so high. They were a company about literally filing taxes after someone died and they sent me a business <laughs> offer the death and taxes podcast oh that's great 
It's pretty good. I had to inform this person that I was not a tax expert, and I got a very funny reply back. They were like, well, I'm going to be telling this story for years. <laughs> it's uh, pretty similar to the uh, New England real yeah, estate, whatever it's called. Yeah, The New England real estate Facebook group, which is a Red Green Lands group, and some like actual New England real estate agent joined it and was like trying to sell stuff. And of course, he got trolled into the dirt because that's how magic players are. So I've also been playing a lot of fun things. Um, I have an Adeline Stompy deck list and legacy coming up and a modern Soul Sisters deck list. God, I love playing Soul Sisters. It brings me back to my early days of magic where it's like, oh, life gain is fun. I would like to gain life. Just uh, just something heartwarming about it. Long ago, uh, I guess not that long, probably about a year ago. Eric Virgo sent me a list he was working on as a donation list. It was uh, green. It was green white. I think it was, yeah, green white soul sisters. But it also had Vito, the like when you gain life, your opponents lose life legend guy, and also Bolus's Citadel to just like shred, because <laughs> your whole deck is one drops, and when you cast them, you gain back the life that you just spent on Bolus's Citadel, and. I was so excited to play that deck, and then by the time it actually came around to record it, he was like, I cut some of the cute stuff and optimized the list to actually win, and then it was just like, Heliod Company. <laughs> I was like, oh, bummer. I was looking forward to doing Bolas's Citadel shit. Please put Bolas's Citadel in your deck, Phil. I, how about Oketra's Monument and Torrens instead? Yeah, reasonable. I made so many shitters. <laughs> I believe it. So I don't know about the two of you, but I actually played Vintage last weekend. After scrubbing out of the uh, modern thing, I did have a little bit of time before I spent time with the wife, and I played the Vintage Challenge because it was only six rounds. And I played the deck that I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm going to keep this deck a secret. I'm not going to record with it until Eternal Weekend. I'm going to blow people out of the water. They want my deck list. It was this Esper Tinker deck that I was working on. I had two Teferi because the metagames, like if you look at any blue deck, they just have four Flusterstorm at the moment. And two Lavinia, which stops all the Force of Vigorous people are playing. I'm like, ah, oh, this list is so good. Well, I got destroyed because my deck was just so clunky compared to what everything else I was facing. Uh, three of my opponents were on that relatively new blue-red tempo deck. And I was just like, oh, this deck like isn't keeping up. Like My deck is just so clunky and they're making my expensive blue-white spells just feel terrible. I was watching Justin Gennari stream and Justin was streaming paradoxical outcome combo with the new uh light up the stage card it is reckless called... impulse yeah. yeah so it's one in a red for a sorcery you can exile the top two cards of your deck until your next turn you can play those cards so he was streaming that with no sagas and the reason i'm that i'm mentioning this whole story is that i've i haven't liked po for the last like six to eight months and i've never really been able to put my finger on why and Justin so elegantly just said it in like a two-word sentence. Uh, and it was that Urza's Saga is really good at doing a longer game plan, even though like it does slot in well because you're playing this artifact strategy, but it doesn't fit what PO actually wants to do. And he went on to like give a longer explanation, but he just hit it right on the head. And I was like, Justin is a goddamn genius. Uh, because like I really haven't liked po partially because it forces you to play 16 lands which is bad with your bolasses at all because half the time you flip a lane and you're forced to pass the turn and then it gets dacked or okoed or whatever 
Um, and I'm just like, oh, this deck's so bad. And he just like immediately nailed it. So now I, I haven't gotten to do it yet, but I'm really, really excited to test like a more traditional PO list this week. And just listening to him for that two minutes just completely changed my outlook for the next week and a half of testing. I guess kind of before we get into thick the thick of it here, I want to make sure that in our intro portion, we uh, thank our donors. So thank you once again to Matt Hackbert and Paul Vanderbrook uh, for donating to keep our editor nice and happy. That's at Force of Phil. He does fantastic work for us and uh, edits out most of the stupid things we say. Thanks, Big Philly. I'm Philigert. <laughs> Fuck me. Fuck me. Right. Um, kind of before we just delve directly into vintage, does anyone have kind of any final things they want to do in our introductory section, or have we hit it all? I was trying to transition before Phil. That's Look, what I was attempting to do. I just had to derail it. We've only spent 40 minutes on this. Can we stretch it out another 20 and just round it out to the hour before we actually reach the topic? I don't think so this time. No. All right. All right. Fine. Yeah, I'm excited about uh, that PO deck Justin's been working on, too. Uh, I have three Eternal Weekend top eights with Paradoxical Outcome, and one of them was a Power 9 list, one of them was a Ganari list, and one of them was a Power 9 list with Ganari updates. So Justin, the various Justins have been involved in all of my PO success at Eternal Weekend. Uh, none of them were involved in the top eight I have with Rug Xerox, so I'll take that one for myself. But it is likely that I will just play whatever Power 9 or Ganari say is the right build of PO, because PO fucking rules. Though I do have something in the pocket. I'll probably, like, Friday night for the first one, just go in as powerful as I can with the busted PO deck. But Montolio has been posting a Bant Xerox deck. I said dick. Bant Xerox deck <laughs> that, uh, he, Montolio's been posting his dick on Twitter, just uh, so everyone knows, if you want to go check that out. Uh, anyway, uh, a Bant Xerox deck that it looks like more like the bug deck than like Rug or Jeskai. It has a lot of the same tools. It's got Oko and Force of Vigor and stuff, but it's got Lavinia and Swords to Plowshares. And he's been putting up a number of 5-0s and posting the screenshots. And that could be in my wheelhouse if I want to want to juke a little bit. So if you are a legacy player thinking about playing Vintage, please figure out who the big names in Vintage are and look what they're saying. You do not have to reinvent the wheel and start from square zero. Like the 75 that I played and tested for Eternal Weekend last year was something that like I, I ripped from a, a, a Vintage player after like being directed to them by Bryant. Like there are huge names in Vintage just like there are in Legacy find them you know there will be a shops person there will be a po person like do a little bit of research and you will probably come out ahead better because of it yeah we have mentioned justin ganari a few times i am actually level one on twitch and i believe he uploads his stuff to youtube as well uh mentioned montolio he is a former vintage world champion he won the black lotus his year that was fucking lucky but yeah, Montolio, normally a shops player, but he's been, I've seen him in the queues on 8cast, he works on Bazaar decks a lot, and he's got this Bant Xerox deck coming together. Uh, really smart individual, moves with the metagame. Check him out. Uh, who else is making vintage right now? Uh, Chubby Rain is in med school, he doesn't have time for that. Rich Shea is uh, on protest break still. Who else can we direct people to? Is Winged Hussar still doing good stuff? 
Brian, I think, has just been playing other formats. But uh, to circle back to what Brian said about uh, the two Justins, sorry, when it comes to vintage, I am mostly someone that likes artifact Tinker decks. Like, Tinker is my reason to play vintage. And Brian mentioned just finding out what those two are doing. I actually think it's super interesting because Justin Gennari is like, I really want to load to the ground PO deck. And other Justin, Justin the Power Nine, is on the exact opposite end of the spectrum where that Justin's deck is all whole, like literally four Hull Breacher, four Fluster Storm, no POs. It does have Saga. It's just like a very large blue tanker deck, even bigger than the Esper tanker decks. So those pads have sort of split and I've tried to like be the middle person and the middle person just doesn't work. I don't think. So you really want to pick a path and stick to it. Right. Yeah. Commit to commit to the grind. Like that's, that is not something you can split the difference on for sure. Like, what do you do? Put like two Hull Breacher, two PO. <laughs> that sounds like a good deck. I mean, I tried Hull Breachers in PO and I didn't like it. Uh, a card I am interested in testing that not a lot of people are is I want to try Dress Down in PO. I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense in the stock list because there are Urza Saga decks. So if you're not on that, then it does make a bunch of sense. That does uh, sort of ramburgle the hate bear decks that you're worried about, like the Lavinia's and Archon of Amiria's, basically the entire band deck I just said that I like. By the way, Phil, there's four Archon in that band deck if you're... <laughs> Oh, You're looking for look, something to play. I look, I, I know what the arc, the various Archon decks are. <laughs> um, yeah. Side Hate note, super cool interaction with Archon of Ameria. So if you flip your Outland Liberator into Frenzied Trap Breaker, Archon of Ameria makes it so that it never flips back. Oh, yeah, that's true. It just stays dark. Just saying it's uh, it's a thing. Uh, conversely, it does also mean that it's probably not going to flip in the first place, but you, you know, or wait, no, it's not, it's not the same. It's if someone doesn't, it flips that direction. Never mind, JK. Yeah. And, and it's, it's the new night and day. It's not the old werewolf mechanic where if you're, if you listeners are not familiar with, uh, Innistrad Midnight Hunt Limited mechanics, it's slightly different. It used to be. In original Innistrad, the werewolves were if any player plays a spell or if no player plays a spell. And now it's if the active player doesn't play a spell, it becomes night. So if you commit your turn, like the trick used to be like, I really want to flip my Huntmaster of the Fells. I'll just pass the turn. And then end step, they're like, Geist flame you for like one red or whatever. And now you wasted your whole turn not flipping your werewolf. They took that away. So it's active player. If you don't play a spell, your werewolf is going to flip, no matter what your opponent does. So you can get into night mode very easily with your werewolves if you want to. So while Brian was explaining that, I'm just browsing goldfish because I thought it was a little bit weird how when I played in the Vintage Challenge, I faced a lot of blue-red tempo-esque decks featuring that uh, commander card that Phil loves. Uh, Lyria, is that what it's called? The Exile Lady? Yeah. Can we refer to her as Exile Lady? I like that. Uh, well, she is not on the front page of Vintage Goldfish. That said, there is a blue control deck that is 3.8% of the metagame. It is literally one Magic Online user named Senpai Blank. <laughs> Just one person playing their deck in every event. Uh, so I think that's kind of funny. <laughs> that is funny. I'm looking at that now. <laughs> so don't trust Goldfish with your life. That's all I'm trying to say. It's a great website, but you know, be open-minded about stuff not being correct. 
Yep. Welcome to the the vintage gears where one person is three point eight percent of the metagame. Uh, more more seriously though, right next to blue control on goldfish is is it tempo, which over the last couple weeks reported players of that deck include Yama Killer and Phil Helmuth, both uh, stone grinders out there, and someone named Bullwinkle, who I don't recognize, got first place in the recent challenge with the deck. This Bullwinkle is a, a magic zoomer. Yeah. And- they win pretty much all the time, like across formats. They're very good. They're definitely like one of the better zoomers, in my opinion. I believe it. The zoomers are powerful on Modo. And this deck, this is it tempo deck. This is just the legacy deck, but it has Ragavan, Murktide Regent, no DRC, no Delver, because you don't need it. Those are too slow and vintage. And you replace your Ponders and Brainstorms with Ancestral Recall and Gush and, uh, you still have four expressive iteration, four pyroblasts in the main. This is a deck that legacy players, if you want to play some vintage, uh, this is not a big leap to get into this. Yeah, and so this is something that we talked about last year, um, but for our newer viewers or viewers who are maybe listeners, right, wrong medium, for our listeners who are maybe thinking about picking up vintage for the first time, there are going to be vintage decks that use the skills that you have acquired in Legacy incredibly well. So, for example, let's say that you are playing some sort of Death and Taxes, Prisony, non-blue deck in Legacy. You will pick up a Shops or Hate Bears deck, or even a Bizarre deck, incredibly quickly because you are used to making decisions without cantrip. You are you are used to figuring out, like, what do I need to do to lock down my opponent? What do I need to do to eliminate their outs? And that sort of thinking will port over very well. And this vintage deck that we're talking about right now, this blue-red tempo deck list, if, if you have been playing a, a Delver deck or one of the various blue-red Urza Saga sorts of decks, like, this is not going to be much of a leap at all. No, definitely not. And... The eight Walla deck, uh, Walla Vine, whatever we're calling it these days, straight up vintage deck. You get Bizarre Baghdad and play all the same cards, like go nuts with that. And Doomsday, straight up vintage deck, uh, tier one legacy deck, also tier one vintage deck. The combo is a little different, but guess what? You get actual Black Lotus in this one. You don't need to figure out your lines. So much easier to play too. (laughs) Yeah, much easier to play. You get Necropotence in in Vintage as well. Oh, deck's nasty. Like in Legacy, you actually have to do work with your five cards in order to win. In Vintage, it's either put Gush or Ancestral on top, and it's really hard to not choose four other correct cards. It's like Black Lotus, Flusterstorm, Oracle, doesn't matter. Like, it's just super easy. The Vintage build can also win without casting Doomsday, which is flippin' sweet, because you get Demonic Consultation and all the tutors. So you can cast Oracle, then with Oracle Trigger on the stack, cast Demonic Consultation, and name a card that's not in your deck, and your whole deck's gone. Like, that that's a sweet line as well. Super sick. Fuck that deck, I always lose to it, but super sick that it exists. Yeah, Demonic Consultation's for partially that reason, mostly in Commander, but it's a $16 card now. Like, I know that I have, like, four of them in a box from when I was 12 because I thought it was a cool card. I'm going to deckbox.org right now to figure out if I own those cards. Not sponsored, unless... Yeah, deckbox.org if you want to hit me up. Uh, I don't have any registered, but I'm pretty sure I own some. I I don't know where they went. I definitely had four of those in a casual 60s deck. That's the sort of monster I was. Back in the day, I hit the, like spike stride where i was actually like reading magazines and websites and learning to optimize deck lists when my friends were still in like the elvish piper is broken world 
And Why we are we dunking an Elvish Piper right now? That's the 7th edition All-Star, Brian. That card is absolute trash. Have you ever spent 5 mana over 2 different turns to maybe generate 3 or 4 mana worth of value if your 1-1s for 4 survives? I don't know, man. If there's any cards left in your hand, I don't know. That really sounds like a Phil Gerger card to me. I have been paid to do this at least twice, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of my friends, I will say, had moved up to Defense of the Heart. They were off of Elvish Piper at this point, but like I was all the way in on just like busting things, and I had a casual 60s deck with four demonic consultation in it. That's how dedicated I was at the casual table to cobbling off and killing everyone. The original CEDH before we even had EDH. I was definitely a Defense of the Heart boy. I was like, yeah, let me get these Avatars of Might. And then Cross and Cloud Scraper came out, and I was like, you're never going to stop me. My game-ending board state, before I figured out uh, like combo and demonic consultation and broken actual broken cards, my, my thing I tried to do was Last Laugh, Urza's Armor, Seal of Removal. It's like, Last Laugh is whenever a creature dies, it deals one to everything. And on a four-person game where you're in eighth grade or whatever and nobody plays removal, the board's going to get ugly. And Last Laugh is just going to kill everyone when it goes off. You got to Urza's armor to make sure you're the last thing standing. It always worked because nobody could kill each other in those games. You're describing, uh, what, sorry, one last bad story. We're just describing no one playing removal. I had a friend that played Wall of Nuts and then put the enchantment on it from Judgment where it gains protection from creatures. And I was just like, I'm hard locked. I can't <laughs> yeah. win. <laughs> i'm not playing do? magic with you anymore I, I was just like so mad at him i'm like if you're gonna cheat i'm just not gonna be friends with you yeah this is <laughs> bullshit is that why you stopped playing with creatures is that what broke you it did ever since then i was a dark ritual boy yeah like you know what if we're just cheating uh, i'm gonna tendrils you out speaking of let's get back on topic here you maniacs one of the most popular decks that it's emerged more recently 10.7 percent of the meta according to goldfish is eight cast which is also a legacy deck right now. Turns out Thought Monitor is a, is a banger. And the deck looks very similar, except you also get Urza, or not Urza, you also get a Tinker in this format and Time Vault. So uh, it, it's just a supercharged version of the same legacy deck with more broken cards. Some professional advice from someone that dabbles in vintage. Always be casting Tinker. If you're not registering Tinker, register Tinker anyway. Uh, it's that good. I am a big fan of Tinker. I agree with that assessment. Over the, the last three years, watching the paradoxical outcome decks like ebb and flow of what they're trying to answer in the format, as the format gets more and more broken, the PO decks tend to constrict around the card negative tutors, uh, like Vamp Tutor, Mystical Tutor. Like They cost you a card to get what you want, but what you want is Tinker and nothing else matters. The year that I won vintage champs i did not i don't think i had any card negative tutors in my list i had like merchant scroll dt uh those ones but i wasn't like honing on the tinker uh, i don't even remember if my list had tinker i was like pretty deep on storming and bolus and citadel didn't exist yet i i imagine the deck had to have tinker i barely even remember i'll look it up but when i was getting into vintage a lot of po decks didn't have it or if they did have it you played Tinker so you could get Jar for three mana. So it was like a second time twister. And I was just like, Memory Jar sucks. I'm not playing this. Agreed. Uh, my, my sad story about Memory Jar is I owned a foil one for years because it was like, it was like five to ten dollars. I, I got it from Morgan Chang. He had it in his wallet. 
I, I messaged him on Facebook and I was like, do you have this? He's like, yeah, I'll bring it to a PTQ. And it was just in his wallet, just like loose with his money. <laughs> like, I'll remember that forever. That card was like $10 forever. And eventually I just sold it and got my eight bucks out of it or whatever. And now it's the max. So I'm sad about that. So I've been playing a lot of eight cast and eight cast adjacent decks in Legacy. And I think people really overvalue Thought Monitor in deck building. I think the card is extremely good, but the only time it's extremely good is if you actually can cast it for like one or two mana. And I've seen it shoved into a lot of decks where you just don't have the raw artifact count to get it to that place in a meaningful amount of time. Um, so I've actually received a good number of deck lists that I have like cut or trimmed thought monitors from for that reason. And I, I have not played this th eight cast list in vintage. It is pushing 30 artifacts. <laughs> yes, I'm not worried about that end in vintage. However, I look at the Bolus Citadel and then I look at like four seven drops and one eight drop. And that makes me real. Well, you're forgetting to see gate restoration. There's also uh that down there so there's how many oh god thought casts forces too man there's there's so many bricks for that bolas's citadel holy crap but there's a lot of zeros too i i recently played a vintage cube which is obviously not quite the same thing but i recorded a vintage cube league and my deck contained blightsteel colossus and bolas's citadel and there was a game where i just like take it for citadel blightsteel was the top card of my deck i was like i'm at four go <laughs> Good fucking luck. And that's basically what you're you're putting your opponent on here. Um, the deck has Sensei's Top, which can go off with Citadel. You get to clear the bad cards for one and then cast them for one from your hand. If Citadel's in play, you're doing okay. I think I think you'll figure it out. And you have right. Urza in the deck. Like, Urza can clear the top card as well. As a vintage player, I've always felt this way, but, like, I'm not good enough at vintage to change it. You mentioned having Sensei's Divining Top to help with Bolas' Citadel. And similarly, with uh, Voltaic Key or Manifold Key and Time Vault, people only ever play one. It seems weird to me in Vintage, like, you have these super busted combos, like Top Citadel, Key Vault. People only ever play, like, half of each combo. And it sort of rattles my brain that, like, you don't run two tops or two keys. Uh, I understand that deck building is, like, kind of tough because there's so many powerful cards but if your deck is focused around infinite turns you could play a second key but everyone has decided that one is the perfect number and it just seems a little bit odd to me well it's really more like five now because yep, saga saga yep, saga plays uh, i think every version of po i've ever registered had two tops in the main deck and i frequently board one out but uh two seems to be the normal number in po and i'm a little surprised that there's only one in this eight cast deck because it does seem like pretty insane and one of the very few things you can do to mitigate the thing that phil just said by the way i found my vintage champs winning list from 2018 and there is no tanker in this deck it was pre-citadel it sucked before then yeah uh no Cid citadel didn't exist we didn't need a robot i was not playing vault key uh, i was playing mentor and four po's and i had Mind's flipping desire in this deck. <laughs> I love Mind's desire, but it that card not was anymore. not good. That card was not good. It wasn't good at the time either. But oh, it wasn't good in 2018. That's sad. To no, hear. Uh, honestly, I did no testing for this event. 
I knew very little about the state of vintage and I was actually pretty burned out on vintage. I thought it sucked. Like we were coming off of the end of like lodestone workshop tyranny. And this was the first year that you could cast paradoxical outcome at vintage champs. At least I think so. Paradoxical outcome is the card that flipped the blue versus shops matchup to positive. It was like fair blue versus shops was bad, always bad. Like you just couldn't do anything. And shops was oppressive and I hated vintage for years. And I was real good at vintage for a while. Oh yeah. Did JK? Did you just put I, I, I wasn't on the that... stack. You animal. God, it was, you didn't have to know anything about fucking vintage. Like I learned so little about vintage, just jamming shops in that era because you played two turn games one way or the other. Yep. Uh, all you needed to know was whether a card is an artifact or not, and then how to tell your opponent to pay more. That's that's all you needed to do. Uh, but yeah, PO flipped. It was a blue deck that could beat shops reliably, and it, that flipped the script. And I literally picked this deck. I went on MTG Goldfish and was just like, what are people playing? Uh, it's like Power Nine. I didn't know him at the time. I think I met him at this event. And... I was like, oh, Mind's Desire? I'm in. If I'm going to play Vintage, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to register the list with Mind's Desire. And the card wasn't good, but I did win the tournament. So, <laughs> scoreboard, Mind's Desire. Exactly. So, I'm sure the two of you can relate to this. You're reading the Legacy subreddit, and you see somebody nope, saying, you already lost Deathrite Shaman should be unbanned. <laughs> Deathrite should never have been banned. Blah, blah, blah. Well, I've got good news for you, dumb Redditor. You can play Deathrite Shaman in Vintage. Essentially, one of the top decks in the format, Bug Midrange, is Shardless Bug from 10 years ago, minus the Shardless Agents. You get to play four Deathrite Shaman, Collector Oofs, Leovold. You get to play Oko. It's basically just Bug's greatest hits all in one deck. And it's super annoying for people like me. So if you hate me, like most of the Legacy subreddit already does, this is the perfect deck for you. So definitely check out Bug Midrange. Yeah, this deck is a banger. Uh, it's basically a prison deck where, because like Collector Oof, we, we just talked about 8-cast, which is a deck with 30 artifacts in it. And that's not that much different than like a PO deck or uh, different things. So like Collector Oof is a banger. Tarmogoyf is functionally moat in Vintage. Like your opponent can't attack anymore. And then eventually you'll be able to start attacking with your moat and your opponent will die. Leovold's unbeatable. Opposition Agent just bricks Doomsday and Tinker and all the things that find Tinker. Everything we just talked about. Like, their their deck is full of hateful stuff. And the one way you can really beat them is just by going over the top before they do those things. And they have four Force of Will, four Force of Vigor to make sure that that doesn't happen. Like, the deck is really, really good. Very legacy sensibilities about it. And you also get to play Endurance out of the sideboard. And let me tell you, a 3-4 body is pretty respectable by vintage standards. That's going to be bigger than a lot of the random shit that's thrown onto the battlefield. So for example, like that beats a Leovold or an Opposition Agent in combat. That beats uh, most of the Hate Bears. It beats some of the smaller stuff out of some builds of shops. Like, you, you are playing a pile of good interactive cards. Yep. Every card is good. Uh, there, the list I'm looking at has one days in it, which I'm a little sus about. 
But every other card I'm looking at is just like banned in Legacy or completely insane. A couple Tabernacles in the sideboard yeah, too. Two of those. You know, fuck them. Yeah, that, that's for the graveyard. That's for the bizarre decks. For it, for those of you coming from Legacy where you're like, why the hell does this creature deck have two Tabernacles on the sideboard? The answer is bizarre decks because they typically can't make mana and they're all trying to win with creatures. At this point in time, would yeah. you say that Tabernacle is more like a piece of power than Time Twister when it comes to vintage decks? I understand that. Twister is very big in Commander. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's actually kind of crushing because like, I, I bought a Tabernacle back in the day when I was amassing my Legacy collection from like 2008 to 2011 in that range, and it is absolutely standard to play two in your fair deck sideboards in Vintage, and it's, ugh, I do not want to get another and one of these. And sometimes you play three if the meta is particularly uh, full of like hollow ones and such. Do not say those words to me, Phil. If I was ever I trying to sell Tabernacle, if I if I was rich enough to own a Tabernacle, if I was made of money, I would sit on them until a paper eternal weekend happened, and then I would just ask for like ten percent more because somebody at that event will be desperate enough to pay the asking price. Yeah, I I am fortunate to be old and have been playing this game a long time, and I've always been a like completionist, a collector card availability is not really on my radar most of the time and as a gainfully employed adult if i'm missing a card i can go on tcg player and just buy it but tabernacle is i would have to run the borrows like i trust that my community and my friends or like you know, someone who trusts me on twitter or whatever could come up with a tabernacle if i need one if i need a second but yeah that that's not a card that i'm just gonna go pick up because i i want a second copy yeah those are like four thousand dollars now like that ballpark crazy it's yeah. rough it doesn't even tap for mana yeah it's it's a terrible card <laughs> functionally sours path all right um so do we want to actually talk about a little bit of data now sure dig into it okay so here's kind of the cool thing about vintage as uh, opposed to something like say legacy right now um in current legacy there's kind of like very very clear tiers um that where like the win percentage shows that off in addition to just like raw card quality. But when you take a look at vintage, most of the decks tend to be in approximately the same win percentage range. Like looking at thousands upon thousands of matches, uh, like over the last six months, I think is how big uh, Justin Gennari's spreadsheet is that he and a bunch of the other people from the vintage community put together. Like, the average win percentage of most of these decks is between 50 and 53%. And the 3% is is a difference, but is a relatively small difference. And there's very few decks that are coming in much above that. And there's some jank or some decks that aren't well positioned that come in below that. But kind of what that means is if you're doing something powerful and you're doing something that's an established deck, it doesn't matter too, too much what you play. I'd like to make a note here. So I mentioned this in the comments to one of my videos recently. That was a vintage video. The people that are playing the vintage challenges right now are a pretty small number. Most of the challenges are somewhere around 40 people. Sometimes they break 50, but they're mostly 40 people. And they're a lot of the time the same individuals. So I don't like putting a whole lot of stock into these 40 player inbred metagames, if I'm being completely honest. I do think that the numbers matter, but I think there's 
you know, you should take it with a grain of salt. That's the my whole point here. Just because, like, Justin Gennari might go on a heater pulling a deck, and he might be the only one doing well playing this really random rogue deck, but just because it has an 80% win rate for two weeks doesn't mean it's actually good. Justin just might be an incredible player and better than everyone else. Or it could be Montolio doing the same thing. Just these guys that have such an insane understanding of the format propping up something that might not actually be that good. There's a an additional layer to that point, which is that the people who have the online god accounts temporarily just to play Eternal Weekend and don't normally play vintage are going to copy the lists from those inbred geniuses and you're going to end up with like the person who just has like a main deck uh some weirdo card and just doesn't know how to use it or what it's for and they're just going to use it wrong or board it out wrong or like uh i i have a story i will leave the name out because yesterday was his birthday but wink wink among my friends you all know who this is I was playing against a a local person in a vintage tournament who he said in our like pre-match banter, he was just like, yeah, I brewed this deck up last night. I think it's pretty good. And over the course of our match, he assembled Dak Faden and Notion Thief against me, which if you've never seen this before, you target your opponent with Dak. They can't draw cards because of Notion Thief. You draw two cards because Notion Thief stole them. And then they have to discard two cards. So it's just like, Discard two, draw two. My this opponent at no point targeted me with Dak Faden, just continued plus two looting, uh, and never realized the combo in quote unquote his deck that he brewed. And I won the match, and I never said a word about it. <laughs> I was just like, "Yep, good games." And I did not correct him. I didn't fix it. Just like, I I hope to see you in the top eight when when the when the rest of them, buddy. And those people who are just playing these fucking decks and don't know why, like, I guarantee you somebody at Eternal Weekend in, like, round one will tinker for Bolas' Citadel and then pass the turn because they hit a land with Sensei's top in play. So like, oh, damn, we're out. Pass. Like, that stuff's gonna happen. Uh, so, there is room. If you can, like, like, the people like Justin, like Bryant just said, who are smart and building new decks, trying new ideas, uh, Montolia with his Bant Xerox deck, these sort of new things if you can see like the actual fabric of the format and attack it there is a giant window open right now for someone like that like i could see louis scott vargas or reed duke like some really good magic player who has a connection to vintage but doesn't play a lot looking at the metagame and being like i can beat this while everyone else is just copying you know whatever the number one deck is which according to goldfish is blue tinker i imagine like you the first three rounds of vintage champs i will be looking at whatever this first list is on blue tinker on goldfish and assume that that's what everyone's playing it's funny you mentioned that because for a showcase last year it actually happened twice reed duke registered dps top eight of the showcase challenge and then in the showcase finals didn't play dps but everyone's like oh Reed just carried this terrible deck to a top eight where Reed probably was very calculated and was like, oh, the metagame's weak to Dark Petition Storm. I should play that. And then uh, a very famous vintage paradoxical outcome player whose name is, sorry, I'm looking it up on Goldfish right now because it's blanking me, F Noop. 
they played DPS in the showcase finals and just easily crushed the entire event. And no one plays DPS. So like if you look for it on Goldfish, you might actually just have to search for decks with Dark Petition in it. But it's a deck that's capable of winning that people just don't respect. So sometimes there's these weird outliers that are actually very good, like Brian mentioned. Yeah, DPS, uh, since we're talking about it, it's very close to Ad Nauseum Tendrils in Legacy. It it just goes fast. It, it's basically trying to like turn one defense grid and then win, or turn one defense grid or duress and then win on turn two. Uh, it, it has usually three defense grids main that a bunch of duresses and just tries to get the game over. And that deck crushes... So like if we look at the metagame at large, like... PO has been near the top of vintage for the last you know, three years, four years, whenever Paradox of Outcome was printed. And that card is very good at beating prison style decks because it's a combo deck with Force of Will. It's very good at beating combo mirrors because it's a faster combo deck with Force of Will also. It's terrible against Flusterstorm, Pyroblast, Null Rod, like all of these things that the Xerox decks are doing. But DPS just shoves Defense Grid into play that doesn't care about Nalrod, doesn't get Pyroblast, doesn't get Flusterstormed, and then they beat those decks. So when the meta is hostile towards PO, DPS is a brilliant choice. But it, you are taking your, like, your nuts in your hand because it's terrible against PO. It's like probably 90-10 in PO's favor. It's not even fucking close. And... If you lose the die roll against shops, you're going to lose that matchup too. So like it, it's it's a gigantic like uh, ball move. Like you you are just uh, nutting up and like I'm betting that I'm going to play against Xerox most of this tournament. Period. Uh, and it's it's a cool call. Uh, I would not play that deck. I I actually I'm not going to lie. I had it sleeved up. I was talking to Cyrus Corman Gill, who was a big proponent of the deck going into 2019 eternal weekend and i had the deck sleeved up and like last minute i just got a really good list from ganari and i was like okay fine i'll play po and then i got paired against cyrus in round one of that tournament and he was on dps and i just fucking 90 tend him but uh that there is a spot for all of these cool decks if you know how to find it so going back to the point about uh these inbred challenges not being the end of the world Going into last year's online eternal weekend, I was playing so much vintage. I was on this hot, I was on an insane heater for the entire summer in both vintage and legacy. And I felt like I was on top of the world with my four color PO list. And then enter Brian Koval. Brian says, I haven't played vintage in like six months. What should I play? And I was like, Brian, you're an insane PO master. You should play PO. Enter Brian into the event. I'm going to play Teamer Xerox or Rug Xerox. In my head, I was like, Brian, what the fuck are you doing, man? You are so good at magic. You should be playing the best deck in the format. Brian here. I was. <laughs> easily top eights one of the uh, Eternal Weekend events. Comes close to top eighting the other two. Just had this vision of the metagame and did his own thing and found it. Props to Brian. But it just shows that like these 40-person challenge results it's only 40 people working on these decks. There's room for other stuff there to be done. I think vintage is one of the magic formats that has the greatest potential for breakthrough decks, archetype changes and things of that nature, 
the pillars are very well established, but the 75s, I don't feel, are. Like, I, I feel like there is a lot of, lot of wiggle room for someone who is really smart and good at reading the room and metagaming and stuff to do some serious damage in terms of constructing a 75 for an event or for a weekend. This is the Sperling effect. I've mentioned this story before, but the year that I won Vintage Champs, Matt Sperling also top aided, and he had he was playing Rug Xerox, and he had no Fluster Storms. Stock was two to four. He had Spell Pierce instead. He had uh, changed a bunch of stuff in the sideboard to include just like Nature's Claim instead of uh, whatever other people were doing. And all week, or all all day, all, I guess it was a one day tournament. It just feels so big. All day he was just like spell piercing Trinispheres while other blue players were dying because you can't fluster storm that. Or he was like easily nature's claiming oath of druids when other people couldn't do that because they had like uh, ancient grudge in that spot or something that or like some uh, shattering spree like something that doesn't answer oath. And he was just like. He changed like seven cards from the stock build and just had this unbeatable monster. And eventually he got cheesed in the top eight by Richard Shea, who had turn one Trinisphere twice, I think, on the play uh, against Matt's hand of like land, mox, mox, ancient grudge. It's like, sorry, you went second. But uh, yeah, like finding those those spots, uh, they are there. They're wide open if you want to do the work and find them. I think that Vintage, much like Legacy, has these the same problem where you have an archetype specialist working on a deck where I'm sure the both of you can also relate to this, but sometimes it feels like you're the only one working on something and there's only so much you can do or only so much you can test as one individual. And a good comparison would be Legacy Doomsday. Oracle came out, there was a bunch of different deck lists, but there's only a few masters, like a bunch of the ant players still hadn't transitioned over yet. So you had people testing the witch in the sideboard, some people even playing the witch in the main deck that exiles your deck if you uh, name a card, much like Demonic Consultation that Brian mentioned. But then all of a sudden, you had, instead of 10 people working on the deck, you had 20 people, and then some success happened, and all of a sudden the Doomsday community grew, and you had... 50 people working on the deck when you have so many minds working on it it just becomes a well-oiled machine to get to this broken deck that we described in the beginning of this podcast where in vintage there's maybe two people working on any given deck for the most part so there is room to find these innovations and if you want to be the person doing that you have to do your homework like you you have to sit there you have to be looking at these archetypes and going like where is the hole right now is this a week where I can do something wild and play an enchantment because nobody has something that removes it? You know, is this a week where I need additional mana acceleration? You know, is this a week where something wild like Opposition Agent just lines up against all the decks I expect to face in a way that saves me some sideboard slots? Um, it, it's not easy to do, you know? You don't get to just, like, see all the lines in the Matrix because, like, you started trying to do this for the first time. I'm just begging this year. And Brian's going to laugh at this because he found so much joy in it last year. But in the start of one of the Eternal Weekends last year, my round one opponent is on blue-white, not even land still, just blue-white random control with four main deck deafening silence. And my list had zero outs in the 75. And I was just like, you have to be fucking kidding me. Of course I would get paired against the person with four main deck deafening silence in their blue counter spell deck. I was so miserable. I was like, should I just drop? I'm so angry and it's only round one. 
That was one of my biggest problems with playing Death and Taxes in paper events. Rounds one and two were just like butthole clench. Like, please let me get paired against a decent deck because I'm not beating your Nick Fit shit pile. It's just not happening. Like, you have four pernicious deeds. What the fuck am I supposed to do? Wow, calling out Everyday Eternal podcast right there, Phil. <laughs> Look, the number of times I've played Nick Fit on my channel is probably north of 20. I'm not one to talk. One year I was at uh, Eternal Weekend when it was in paper. And I always spring for the VIP package because don't play mad and you get like a five minute massage included. And it's it's a good good deal. Um, and it was the Friday night before the main event started Saturday. And I went up to the the table to claim my VIP swag. And Nick Koss was at the table, the uh, owner of Card Titan and TO for Eternal Week in the last few years. And there was one person in line. I was like, okay, this won't take long. I'll just grab it on my way out. That one person, whose name I will not name, but is a very uh, well-known, notorious, you could say, vintage player, uh, ha hosts a podcast, and he was freaking the fuck out on Nick Koss. Uh, his, his position was, there should be more trials, they should fire on demand, it is not fair that him living where he does... There were no trials he could play locally to earn buys, and he came out a day early and played in both trials, and he just lost to White Eldrazi Thalia shit, which isn't even a real deck. My deck is tuned for the winner's metagame. It is outrageous that I, me personally, this person, is about to start a tournament with no buys this important just because I didn't have the opportunity and someone chose to play Thalia. And I was just like, oh my god, this asshole. And I sat there, I listened to five to ten minutes of this, and eventually I just like yelled over his shoulder like, Nick, can I get my stuff? And the guy was just sort of like, huff puff, get out of the way for a second. It's like, uh, yeah, th those fake decks are going to exist. And the thing about fake decks is that if you're playing vintage, like real fucking vintage, you're going to crush those fake decks. Like, oh, you have Null Rod and Simeon Spirit Guide to get it out there faster? Guess what? Tinker. <laughs> like, I, I don't care. Like, that's... There are decks that are so powerful in Vintage. Uh, like, that's one of my uh, normal heuristics, which I broke last year to, to some success. Like, the rules are meant to be broken. But uh, I think it was Cyrus Cormangill who, like, disdainfully once said, like, Ugh, imagine putting Black Lotus in your deck to cast Tarmogoyf. And I, I generally share that that disdain. I don't think for... Cyrus is wrong for what it's worth. Yeah, I don't think he's wrong either. And I generally do subscribe to that, like, this is a vintage tournament. Stop trying to like uh find the Achilles tendon and just like, you know, kill the 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 unkillable warrior with that one little spot on his heel. Like, just be that unkillable warrior most of the time. Like dumpster these fake decks, get them out of the way. And have a plan for them. Like put a balance in your deck. If you're worried about like losing to Arkan of Amiria and Lavinia or whatever, just, you know, Mystical Tutor for balance. All their creatures are gone. Now you win. You can do stuff like that. Uh, it's the entire vintage card pool. Make it sing. So if you've ever wondered why the vintage decks, like, that are hate bear based play things like maybe Mare of Averbrook or something like Luminarch Aspirant, it's to kill the opponent before they get out of the soft block. Because vintage cards are are fucking powerful. Like, I have lost so many games of Vintage 
after I have a soft lock to someone just like ripping Tinker for a Sphinx of the Steel Wind, and now there's this giant life linking fucker in play who is larger than everything that exists in my deck. Like, you gotta get people dead if you are playing vintage. And I actually fast. had a phenomenal game on camera against Montolio. Uh, it's it's my uh, Urza Saga Paradoxical Outcome League from a week or two ago. If you want to go check it out, it I he was on eight cast. And I had one game one and like game two was winding down. I had like an early, uh, I, d I did something that locked him out. It couldn't have been null rod cause that wouldn't have been in my deck, but like I did something to just, he was not playing the game and, uh, maybe it was opposition age. I, I don't know. Like go, go watch the video. I, I feel stupid now cause I don't know, but, uh, he was not playing the game and I was, had like lethal on board. I had force of will in hand and I was just like lol this whatever is about to happen uh i think we're good there's not really many draws that could get him out of this and he ripped tolarian academy which is as you may have heard a powerful card and the seven cards that had, he had amassed in hand when he wasn't playing the game on the subsequent turns were suddenly on the stack all of them and i easily lost that game and I was like, oh, yes. Like, even when it was happening, I was like, this sucks, but it's so sweet. Like, vintage cards, you you got to get your opponent dead once you have a little squeeze, because the squeeze is not going to hold forever. I'd also like to share this story as a gentle reminder that the vintage community is pretty small. Uh, so if you're testing for Eternal Weekend, there is a chance that the 60 people that are active in the Vintage League all know one another. So if you're going to be a giant dick and rage on people, People are going to find out. Uh, I don't play Vintage very often, and I'm not going to say their actual name, but instead I will use uh, something similar to their name, which is Pox Pox Pox. And I was playing a league, and I just have like a fairly good draw. I wouldn't say it was a busted draw, but it was above average. And in chat, they just start monologuing. And I had, I'm aware that this person plays a decent amount of Vintage. And they just started monologuing about how my draw was the best possible thing I could have had and everything else. But at the same time, they were choosing to register Tarmogoyf into their deck. And for the most part, I don't like egging these people on because I feel like it makes me look bad. But at the end, they're just like, oh, of course you had Tinker, just the best card in your deck. And it was probably the 20th comment they had left. And I just said, yeah, I chose not to put Tarmogoyf in my deck. And they lost it even further than that. So... Like, one, don't be a salt monster, but two, register what you chose to beat and lose to. So if you're on, you know, maybe one of the bizarre decks that doesn't have all the free forces in it, maybe you're on Hogak Vine, you have to come to terms with the fact that you're not going to beat the best draws out of PL or GPS or something else. Like, you're not going to beat their upper tier draws, but you might stomp their average to lower tier draws and you just kind of have to, you know, move on with your life. You also just, like, can't get mad about losing games in Vintage. Like, you just get vintage sometimes. Both people have incredibly broken decks. There are going to be games that are decided literally on turn one. Right. Like, when I played my Green-White Hate Bears League, I played a turn one Thalia Heretic Cathar, I think it was. And my opponent just snap conceded to it because it was worth, like, three time walks to them. Like, that shit happens sometimes. And Thalia Heretic Cathar is not a powerful fucking magic card, right? It's, it's really not. Okay? Like, we're all there? Yeah. So when you start doing anything above that... Brian has this story where, like, the early game of a vintage uh, game is Mulligans. Brian, you can tell the story. Oh, no, no. About, like, it, 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 
the the early game is deck construction the mid game is mulligans and the end game is turn one and that that that's not as true as it once was like uh modern horizons one actually did a lot for that uh with the force of vigor force of negation and then uh, now we have endurance as well like there's a lot more free spells that uh they they kind of serve as backstops to de- completely degenerate bullshit but it's still vintage and you should like getting vintaged is a thing people say like oh, i got vintage or oh, i vintaged them real good and every deck can vintage you even at, like i still just have this bug deck up on my screen because i haven't x'd out of the window yet or no this is bant i lied i have a bant deck up on my screen and this deck has black lotus and the three on color moxen in it this deck can go like black lotus mox mox land lavinia oko time walk or whatever <laughs> like th- this deck with tarmogriff in it can also just like present this insane soft lock with a degenerate clock on turn one and then like uh, the first turn you get they strip mine you like yeah great uh vintage is gonna happen even in the fair decks but you can build your deck to vintage more often but understand that that leaves you sort of pants down or at least more exposed to the things that are anti-vintage like collector oof and lavinia and endurance etc so since we're talking about like the super powerful things so this deck that i'm looking at i'm not going to say the deck but it has black lotus in it and it also has this throne of eldraine common worth roughly 10 cents what is that common you each get one guess oh wow throne of eldraine common worth 10 cents I don't know, man. Uh, the only throne of, I can think of, I'm thinking mystical dispute, but that's not a common. What do you got? Ginger brute. It is seeing play in the <laughs> oh, no. aggro shops list. Stop so... it. <laughs> oh my god. Fucking why? I have pl- I have registered this card in two different formats, and I did not think it was good in either of those formats. I can't recommend registering Gingerbrood for this tournament, but I mean, live your best life. I mean, imagine beating someone's like $90,000 deck with your Gingerbrood, though. Yeah, I at at the last paper vintage tournament I played in, uh, I had to proxy one opposition agent <laughs> in my $90,000 deck. I was, just like, I was so mad about that. If you yeah, want to but- play shops, though... Uh, Gingerbread aside, the Golos builds uh, seem really good. I played one a couple months ago on the channel, and I'm not a shops player. I hate shops. Uh, I don't have reps, really. I just can do basic mathematics in my head, and I easily 5-0'd with Golos shops. So, strong consideration for that one. Has my endorsement. Um, I, I played with both last year. Um, so, there's kind of three common shops variants there's aggro shops which are looking to dump a bunch of creatures into play and they use um cost reduction effects uh like foundry inspector to really just go ham you play a lock piece you play a couple of creatures and you hope you kill your opponent in two to three turns you have the you have the the golo shops builds which kind of get a little more toolboxy and allow you to fish up some cool things like say tabernacle to interact with your opponent in ways that you normally otherwise couldn't and you can get cute and like grab a Caracas and bounce your Golos and do shenanigans. Um, and then you have combo shops, uh, which is trying to like cheese some combo wins in addition to the normal shops BS. But I find 
the combo shops decks incredibly clunky personally the, for the, for some additional clarity the combo shops decks usually some they have like leyline helm in them but they also have like darked up stage because you can get those with golos they're still very shopsy some of these even have like main deck null rod uh for what it's worth not the ones with helm in them obviously but they are very prisony it's just they also have a combo win in them yeah when your matchups are good with that deck like that deck feels very good because like you just get free ones off ley lines or something like that sometimes but i feel like the mulligan decisions are just fucking painful every time i play that deck one piece of uh, recommendation that i actually do have and this goes for both legacy and vintage let's say you're joe schmo and you only have one day off over each weekend to play in one of these events don't pick a deck now lock in your 75 and then just go, this is the only list I'm going to play all weekend. I would, if you're only playing the Sunday, I would look at what one Friday and I'd look at what one Saturday, maybe make an adjustment at like, maybe there's a, a cyborg slot that you have. That's a flex spot. And then make a decision like that. Just because over last year, I saw the metagame completely change in both formats over those days. So we mentioned this in the last episode, but the first day it was all bug by Sunday rug xerox was one of the most popular decks just because brian was live tweeting at all of his matches and stuff those changes will happen again so i just don't want people locking in something too early and then being punished because of it i'd say if you have a respectable amount of time to prep one of the best things you can do is play a league with about the top five decks in the format um vintage is a format where minute interactions and fringe rules knowledge and things of that nature end up being the difference between a win and a loss in a lot of cases and so if you get a better feel for the things that the opponent on the other side of the table is going to be thinking about that will probably serve you just as well if not better than a couple extra leagues with the same deck that you think you're probably playing yeah what phil just said is really important there's a lot of things in vintage that you experience and you're like oh that's how that works or like i'm only going to make that mistake once and don't make that mistake in the main event like use your free token and uh go deep on some leagues so here here's one that i i learned live recently uh so i had a torpor orb in play and i i, I thought i had everything under control I, I didn't think i had anything to think about and then someone just evoked an endurance while they were tapped out, and it just stayed on the battlefield. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, shit. Did not play around that. So there's going to be a lot of things of that general nature where if you play a couple leagues with a deck, you're going to learn what things you have to think about. And, and like some things that are also in Legacy, like if you can tap your opponent's Trinisphere somehow, that turns it off. Uh, mana Crypt triggers in the upkeep. Mana Vault triggers in the draw step like if your opponent has necropotence in play they don't get a draw step so they don't have to take one from mana vault like there's these like little things here and there um cr managing creature count with oath of druids in play or when an oath could come into play intervening if clauses uh like bridge from below uh, that bridge has to be in the graveyard when it triggers and when it resolves so knowing how to time against dredge all of those things uh matter and they're things that you're going to get a feel for when you actually play one of the things that i'd like to point out is also learn how your opponents are trying to beat you if you're po 
find out which shop variants have which heat, because the Golos shop stacks have a lot of mind break traps, which is pretty common, but the aggro shops list, the first few that I've clicked on have archive trap. Not to say that they can't play mind break, but archive is completely different. So that is particular hate for Doomsday, but you might get away with being PO and just slamming a Tinker on turn one instead of having to respect Mind Break and casting it on turn two. So I would definitely look at all of that stuff. But also, if you're a Doomsday player, maybe look for those Archive Traps because four Archive Trap in like every list I'm clicking on is a lot if you're looking to cast the card Doomsday. Yeah, that's harsh. Vintage sideboards also tend to be pretty unique in that there's a couple of cards that you very, very, very much care about. And then a lot of generic-y stuff. Uh, because vintage sideboards often have to be built to respect things like shops and, and dredge and various other bizarre decks. So they don't actually have that much wiggle room in the sideboard for other effects. So if you do a little bit of research, you will know very quickly, these are the two or three cards that I really, really need to be focused on. So when I was playing bizarre decks last year, I, I knew what the various sideboard configuration options were for all the main decks. Like, oh, if I see this one, it probably means that they have Grafdigger's Cage, whereas I see with this one, it probably means that they have Ravenous Trap. And identifying that stuff puts you really far ahead. Now that it's been a few minutes since Brian's story about someone freaking out about a white Eldrazi and Vintage, I'll admit, half of that story could have sounded like me. Just being like, this mouth breather decided to register Thalia and Vintage? They just went and ruined my day? That sounds like something I joke about with my friends. I would never actually scream at somebody in public over a card choice my opponent decided to make, but I would be pretty defeated after losing round one to White Aldrazi. My inner rage would be boiling, but I'd be like, you deserve it, Bryant. You should have played better. You're better than this. I will agree that I, that would annoy me. Like, if I did get cheesed uh, by some hate bear deck with my sick vintage deck, and I would think about it a lot. I would not approach the tournament organizer and complain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like th there, there's a line there. Like it is okay to be frustrated. It is not okay to be a psycho. Um, I actually have another story since we're on it. A a vint another vintage world champion who I will not name. Uh, that's the third person I've not named in this episode. I need to sack up and just start naming names. But a, I mean, I think we all know who the last one was about. <laughs> uh, a vintage world champion, former vintage world champion. Uh, one of the years that I top aided with PO, uh, I was, it it was like round six out of eight or something, and this person just got eliminated with their Tarmogoyf deck uh, by PO. And spent the next 20 minutes just haranguing the head judge about it's outrageous that it's allowed that someone like I, I took four minutes worth of game actions that entire match. And my opponent just got to pick up their stuff and put it back down and pick up their stuff and put it back down. It's ridiculous. It should, it should all be banned. And like and the judge was like the. The judge was like, uh, your opponent was playing at a reasonable pace. They just had a lot of game actions to make. And he's like, yeah, but that's ridiculous that it's even allowed. It's like, all right, homie, uh, you chose to register Tarmogoyf. And here we are. I will wave to you from the top eight with my PO deck <laughs> while I'm taking all these game actions. And like there, there is a place. There is a, a healthy way to be frustrated. 
and uh, the head judge or tournament organizer is not your therapist. So uh, <laughs> find find a healthy place to put that and understand that we're playing a game and it's vintage. It is very cost efficient, though. Like you don't have to pay them if you're just causing a scene. Did you think of that, Brian? Right. Yeah, uh, I, I did not. Like, I mean, what's what's the ideal situation there? Like, you, you're like yelling at the head judge for twenty minutes about a series of legal game actions your opponent took in a reasonable time frame. What are you looking for out of that? Like, just you know what? You're right. I'm going to use my head judgely powers <laughs> to write to Wizards of the Ghost and. Like, that's not a thing. I don't know. Or like, Nick Koss. What's Nick Koss going to do for that other person? Or it's just like, oh, um, yeah, sure. I will reach out personally to all the stores next year in your area to make sure they run plenty of Eternal Weekend Trials for you to get your two buys or whatever. Shut up. <laughs> if you do need a therapist, better help. Uh, $20 for your first session. So, I mean, that's cheaper than your entry. If you really need to rage on someone, you could talk to a therapist for twenty dollars. I'm just throwing that out there. They would like to hear about your termoglyphs. I have not been uh, shy over the last year. Uh, I, I have started therapy last October, um, so like thirteen months ago now. It's great. <laughs> I, I I walk around with less stress. Uh, I I don't rage. Uh, I was never much of a rager, but like I had my moments, and uh, we, I think we all do. And uh, I'm just in a better place, and I strongly recommend it. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with therapy. Brian, serious question you don't have to answer, but how often have you mentioned Termoglyph in your therapy sessions? Uh, <laughs> close to zero, because I've chosen not to register that card. I, I am controlling what I'm... There are things you can control and things you can't control, and I've chosen to control my frustration levels by simply not registering Termoglyph in a format with Black Lotus. Phil, I feel like this is something that perhaps you could learn from this conversation. All right, do we have any... Uh... <laughs> vintage content we want to talk about left um we haven't mentioned uh, we've said like bizarre decks we haven't really here talked and there to, yeah but we haven't gone into like hogak versus hollow vine versus dredge uh who has thoughts about that because i don't i hate all those decks and i'm gonna play a ton of hate but uh phil you tend to like that sort of shit wizard 2002 yeah. last year won one of the eternal weekends after everyone going into the event was like those decks are unplayable those decks are unplayable bizarre master shockingly won the event yep mark hornung get it so i really enjoyed playing hogak last year um i i feasted while playing with that deck um i had like an 80 percent win rate going into the the weekend it was absolutely absurd um, I feel like things have changed a little bit in a year. Um, the printing of more powerful things that enable graveyard hate is part of that. So Urza Saga is a tutor for graveyard hate, and Endurance is a free pitch graveyard hate spell that you can't necessarily see coming. I'm a little bit less enthused to be on graveyard decks accordingly, um, but it would still be one of the things that I would absolutely like test heavily um, if I was like super seriously invested in Vintage Eternal Weekend. One notice, one thing I've noticed is since last year, Sphinx of the Steel Wind used to be lights out versus Dredge, and in fact, almost all of the bizarre decks. And now, when you look at the list, almost all of them have three bridges in the main deck because Tinker for Sphinx started to be pushed to the main deck, so the Dredge decks adopted to bridge. So maybe don't mess with stock list if you see them, because like 
the people playing in these 40 person inbred tournaments, they might know a little bit better about that sort of thing. Where if you're just on the outside looking in, you remember last year's event and you see three bridge from blow and you're like, oh, well, that card sucks. I'm going to cut that. There might be a reason. Yeah. So again, we've already talked about like take this data with a grain of salt. Um, but Dredge's win percent overall right now is about 48%. The the squee, um, which is the like the vine version of these Hogak decks, is about uh, 47 or 48% as well. Hogak is doing the best of them at 50%. Last year, I imagine that if we looked at this data, like the numbers for Hogak would have been much higher. I considered it one of the like absolute decks to beat going into eternal weekend last year you know that's why i was playing it like hogak doesn't come in mind to me when i think of like the best deck or two in vintage right now i don't know about you all but it doesn't make the list agreed completely the my my called shot of rug xerox being the deck last year was largely because it had a really positive bizarre matchup uh like four ley line two tabernacle uh it were in the deck and you the Ren and Six Wasteland engine that the deck was built around, you could waste the Bazaar reliably. Jeskai Xerox, which was the main Xerox deck at the time, had one strip mine in the 75 for land removal, where Rug was built on strip mine three Wasteland Ren and Six. And that's just, if you can clip the Bazaar, then you can beat the creatures. But if you can't clip the Bazaar, they're just going to keep coming. And that was just a, a fundamental decision that. I don't think you have to put a whole lot of respect into this year. There is a tech card that Jarvis, you introduced me to uh, midway through my heater last year, which was Yixla Jailer. He was saying, Brian, if you look at how every single bizarre deck is configured, none of them run answers to Jailer. And at the time, that was true. But since then, Modern Horizons 2 was printed and Fury was released. Only one of the bizarre decks gets to run fury and that's hollow vine which gives it a interesting edge because it's much better against the creature strategies and it actually has a really good answer to yixla jailer that said most people don't play jailer uh whatsoever and some dredge lists you'll find like a one or two of contagion if they're trying to beat it it also hits like i guess it doesn't hit lavinia that's not true but they have outs and you get some points if they're if you're playing a deck where they wouldn't expect you to board Jailer. But out of the three of them, I think I'm most afraid of Hollow Vine, if I'm being completely honest. I, like, I know how to beat Dredge. Dredge is a known thing. You know what cards they have. Hollow Vine is similar, but they have bare minimum 11 pitch counter spells. They have Fury for your hate. They have Force of Vigor. They also get to play Endurance. It gets to play all of the best cards because they just don't have to play those dredge slots almost and it's also a deck that is relatively resilient to the graveyard hate itself like yes the, the graveyard hate has a real impact on the game but you know the hollow ones still come into play the madness cards still come into play um you can you can have your hate piece in play and still just lose to a couple of shitters basking rule of beats and if you're a fan of the Madness deck in Legacy, you should definitely look at that deck. I'm looking at a list right now, and it has Snap back in it. I don't think I've thought about that card since 2012. Wow. Um, what does that card do, just for some of our audio listeners? It is a one in a blue instant. Instead of paying this card's converted mana cost, you can pitch a blue card from your hand, return target creature to its owner's hand. 
That's from Time Spiral, right? Correct. Yep. So kind of what we're seeing here is like those niche overlapping interactions, right? Where like the person who knows what they're trying to beat can find the right card. So Bryant is talking about like, hey, maybe Yixla Jailer is in a spot where it'll be really good because people can't answer it. And similarly, um, these Holovine players are like, hey, I know what I need to answer. I need this fringe card that can do this. Um, so for example, in the Legacy version, I've played Flaring Pain a handful of times because that's something that allows me to push through those last couple of points of damage through some bullshit from something like lands that otherwise would just totally hose me. Uh, another layer to knowing what you're playing around is if you have, like, for example, if you have Leyline of the Void in your sideboard and you board them in and there's two in your opening hand, knowing whether you should put in one or both is a big deal. Is their Leyline removal going to be Force of Vigor, where you could just leave one in your hand to either recast later, brainstorm away, you know, whatever? Or is it Nature's Claim, where you want to slam both into play and make them deal with both? Like the, those sort of little percentages are going to go for miles in a format like vintage. All right, folks, any closing thoughts here? Play Tinker. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I am also on the play Tinker or aggressively hate Tinker versions. Uh, I, I will I will say for my listeners, um, this important this tournament's very important to me and I normally would try to keep it tight to the vest. I'm going to be looking at Blue Tinker first and those Bant Archon decks second, depending on uh, which which side of the bed I roll out of uh, on which days. Uh, the I, I think just playing the best deck or the deck that's best at beating the best deck are where I want to be. If I play in this event, I'm probably playing Bant Archon. I can't wait to dress down, you fools, and then just pick up and put down, pick up and put down. <laughs> I can't wait to force a vigor your dress down mid combo and turn my Archon back on, you idiot damn <laughs> busted Ooh, i like yeah. that let him commit and then clip it yeah sick stuff uh i'm excited i'm super 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 excited uh medium medium minus on legacy uh i know we're trying to wrap down here but i i will just say um this week recording legacy videos has been miserable because everyone's in eternal weekend try hard mode and i'm averaging three is it delver opponents per league when normally it's like zero to one because uh, leagues are are more for playing around and then the sunday challenges are when people are trying hard try hard mode in the leagues sucks for content brews but vintage i'm very excited about and can't wait to get into that boy modern's great right now i'm recording so much modern for no reason whatsoever <laughs> yeah, what a coincidence that modern is is good i don't know yeah uh I, i'm jealous my queue is full of legacy decks but we'll power through and get to this vintage weekend can't wait brian imagine a world where wizards have the stones to make a change to a format before an event to create excitement around it what what would that be like uh maybe someday we'll find out but for this weekend Ooh. oh yeah. but for this weekend uh it is what it is enjoy your your is it mirrors in legacy quote unquote enjoy and actually unironically enjoy your vintage matches the week after and we'll check in after a turtle weekend is over